What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Today, I would like to take you inside the American courtroom, but not just any American courtroom. I want to take you back approximately 50 years ago to the year of 1973. This was a monumental year for the judicial system in the United States of America. A woman in the state of Texas was pregnant with her third child, and she desired to have an abortion. However, she could not because it was against the law in Texas. Her name was Norma McCorvey, known by Jane Roe in the famous court case Roe versus Wade, and she argued the abortion laws in Texas were unconstitutional. Her legal team filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade. He was the local district attorney. Shockingly, her case, as you very well know, went all the way to the Supreme Court system, and they ruled 7-2 to in her favor. In 1992, it was revisited again during Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and the Supreme Court revisited all these particulars and declared it was a woman's right to have an abortion because it was constitutionally pr- protected. On May the 2nd, 2022, just earlier this month, some information leaked of the potentiality of this landmark court case being overturned. This could possibly become the greatest overturned case in the history of not just American law, but in the history of law worldwide. If it is reversed, it would have made Norma McCorvey very happy because she is accredited to saying that her involvement in that case in 1973 was her greatest mistake. Now that I have your attention, I want to share some shocking statistics that are worldwide statistics concerning abortion. Did you know more than 1.5 billion babies have been aborted worldwide in the last 50 years? I said billion, not million. An estimated 50 million abortions are carried out throughout the world every day, or excuse me, every year, excuse me. In America itself, we are told that 50 million abortions have taken place just on our soil since 1973, but every year, 50 million babies are aborted. Worldwide, one in five pregnancies will end tragically in abortion. Approximately 90% of Down syndrome babies are aborted worldwide. 42% of all yearly deaths in the world are not from cancer, are not from pneumonia, are not from suicide, but from abortion. Every two seconds, a baby is aborted. Every time your heart beats, just listen carefully to your heart beating right now. Every single time your heart beats, a baby dies at the hands of abortion. I found this even more shocking. Baby girls are, are a particular target of abortion. At least 100 million girls have been already wiped out 
through the, what they call gender side. That is the deliberate targeting of baby girls for abortion. In 2011, the Wall Street Journal reported that 163 million babies were aborted simply because they were girls. They called it the war against girls. Today, I am not here to try to persuade to you why you should change your view on abortion. But I am here to tell you that humanity is not at the hands of the American court system. Humanity is at the hands of God's courtroom. And today, the title of my sermon is God's Courtroom. You see, as we think about this thing called abortion, how we as humanity are going to be held accountable by God. And if we stand in his courtroom, I submit to you today that by that, we are all guilty. 1.5 billion babies. There's approximately 8 billion people in the world. So just imagine the entire country of India or China being removed. And that's how many babies have died at the hands of abortion. The prophet Jeremiah writes by inspiration that God knew him even when he was in the very womb. So today we know that scripture teaches clearly that life begins at conception. And I am thankful today that my mom did not choose abortion. Today I think you should be remembered in the fact that your parents did not choose abortion. Today as we think about abortion, as we think about all these um, different things, as we're walking into America's courtroom, we're seeing that right now this year that that whole system might be overturned and that states might be given the power to decide whatever they will as far as laws in their own state. But today, as we think about the American courtroom, the laws in, in America can be overturned and changed. Pop opinion can influence how we declare what is right and what is wrong. But today, my friend, when you stand in God's courtroom, popular opinion does not matter. When you stand in God's courtroom, the laws of the Constitution of America and, and the different things, or even the Constitution here at our church, it does not matter anymore. It's what God declares to be law. Today, I just want to remind you that, that I'm thankful to live in, in, in a country like ours. But, but even in a country like ours, our system of law is still at the hands of the fallenness of man. And that our system of court is fallible. If we have a law that has been created by fallible men, if we have a supreme court system that is made up of fallible men and women, if we have a jury that is made up of fallible men and women, then surely the laws that we declare can be fallible. But I submit to you today that the courtroom of God, God's law is infallible. And as we come to 1 John chapter 2, we see that John is using these legal terms to, to, to illustrate God's relationship with you and me. That is, if we walk into God's courtroom with myself as a lawyer, or, or you could get the best lawyer in the business, if you have a lawyer that is of temporal value, they will not help you. The only lawyer that can help you is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Today, I want to leave with you one thought, and it is this key thought 
The only hope in God's courtroom is to have Jesus Christ as your advocate. That is the theme of these six verses here, my friends. That is the theme of these six verses, my brothers. That is the theme of these verses, my dear sisters. That if you walk into God's courtroom with your own lawyer or with yourself representing your case, you will be declared guilty. But if you have Jesus as your advocate, you will be declared innocent. We'll get into it a little bit later, but the word advocate here, it just simply gives the idea that somebody is coming alongside of another to help them, to intercede uh, on their behalf, to console them, to comfort them, and to simply be their advocate. And that is exactly what Jesus does in the courtroom that God has. Today, I'm sure you're asking, why is Jesus my advocate in God's courtroom? And I'm glad you asked, because I want to answer that question today in two ways from these six verses. The first thought comes from the first two verses, and it is simply this statement. Jesus Christ is my advocate because he is my propitiation. Now, as we move forward in, in the sermon today, these, these sermon statements are, are personal. I've developed them from my own personal viewpoint. And today, I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus your advocate? And can you honestly say that Jesus is your? Or could you honestly say Jesus is my advocate and give the reason because he is your propitiation? If you can't, then you are in a great heap of trouble. But if you can... You should be encouraged today because you've received the grace of God. You've received the mercy of God and you've received the love of God. I want to draw your attention to the first part of verse number one. As we think about this thought, Jesus Christ is my advocate because he is my propitiation. I want, I want us to, to get in our minds as we walk into God's courtroom there at the very, at the very end, uh, as we walk into the entranceway, we see at the very end of the wall is a large chair. And in that chair, God the Father sits. And as I walk in as a sinner, verse number one reminds me that sinners are condemned in God's courtroom. Notice it says, my little children. Now, let's pause right here. John is writing from a pastor's perspective. We know that John was the pastor of the church at Ephesus in the ancient world. And as he is writing these words here, he, he gives the idea that these were his dear children. We believe that, that John is perhaps 80, even possibly 90 years of age. This is one of the last books in the Bible that were ever written, sometime between 90 and 95 AD. And as John's writing these words, he is writing from a pastor's heart because these people mean something to him. And he says, my little children. And he says, these things write I to you. Notice these words here. It says that you sin not. Just previously in chapter 1, he said, if you claim that you do not sin, you're a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. But now he says that he's writing to people that you don't sin. So what does John mean here? Does he, does he mean that we could reach the point of sinless perfection, that we could no longer sin? No, I don't think that's what he means here. I believe what he's referring to here is that when it says here that he says the goal of the Christian life is to sin less. Not to be sinless, but to be to, but to sin less. Two words, not one. 
And so as we come to faith in Christ, we realize that the goal is to live more like him. But, but if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you will abide as a sinner in God's courtroom and you will be guilty. That's what the word condemned means. It means to be declared guilty. And today, I, I, I know that we, we probably are all Bible scholars here, and you know all these verses that I'm about to share with you. But just to remind ourselves, the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here, the Bible says, it says sin. It's, of course, we know that it gives the idea of missing the mark, but, but let, let me just give you an illustration. When I was in, I think I was in like fifth or sixth grade, I walked into my doctor's office. And he said, Brian, I think you're going to be about six foot tall. And I stand at, at about five foot eight or about five foot nine. My doctor was clearly wrong. I do not measure up to the prediction that my doctor said. I had these ambitions of going to the University of North Carolina as a sixth grader because I wanted to play basketball for the Tar Heels. And surely, if you are my height and you play basketball, you have to be extremely, extremely, extremely good. So, I didn't measure up to the height that he predicted. And I say that to say this, that all of us here today do not measure up to the standard that God has set in his word through the Son of God. And so, because of that, we're guilty. We are condemned in God's courtroom if we do not have an advocate. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It says, for the wages of sin is death. So because of my sin, I earn separation from God, and I deserve this thing we call death. And then I also deserve eternal death. In a terrible place, the Bible describes as hell. So the two options are simply this. To live a life that measures up to the standard of God's word or to be justified by God. And I submit to you today, it doesn't matter how picture perfect you think you might be, you will never be able to measure up to the standard that God has set. You will never be able to measure up to the perfect standard in thoughts, perfect standard in the words that you say or the actions that you will do. At some point in your life, you're gonna stumble and you're gonna sin. And so the implication here in this passage is that, is that live your life with the goal of sinning less. And when you do sin, because you will, be encouraged because you have an advocate. So the second thought underneath our, our first thought here, Jesus Christ is my advocate because he is my propitiation. And that sinners are condemned in God's courtroom. But, but notice this, believers are justified in God's courtroom. Look at the last part of verse 1. It says, and if any man sin, gives the idea that, that you are going to sin at some point. He says, we have an advocate that is this interceding, consoling, comforter, an advocate. In a sense, it's like a defense attorney. This, he is our lawyer. And, and if you've ever been into the courtroom and you don't understand the legal jargon that the judge is declaring or the, or the lawyers are declaring, you can look at your lawyer and they can help explain those things to you. And they can console you. They can say, hey, well, we're going to be able to use this part of the case to, to, to maybe make you innocent or maybe to declare the other people guilty. 
And so that's Jesus' role here. He's coming alongside of us and consoling us and reminding us that, hey, I'm comforting you because, hey, listen, I'm going to justify you. The word justify literally means to declare righteous, and that's what God does. Notice the word. It says he's the advocate. He is the one who comes alongside us to encourage us, to help, help us, to comfort us, and to act on our behalf with the Father. God the Father is the judge. God the Son is our lawyer. And we, in a sense, are the sinners that needs the justification of God. And it says Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here it gives the idea that Jesus is the one who measured up to God the Father's standard, that he lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, did not sin in thought, word, and deed, and he's the only one who can be our advocate because he's the only one who is sinless. And he's in the courtroom. And he is there. He is defending us. He is interceding on, a, on our behalf. He is there when the accuser comes and says that, hey, he broke your law in this point. Jesus said, it's okay because I paid for his guiltiness. And that brings us to verse 2. Sinners will be condemned in God's courtroom. Believers will be justified in God's courtroom. But now here is the encouraging thing. Offenders are propitiated in God's courtroom. I'm sure that you've rarely ever used the word propitiated in your vocabulary. I'm sure that you probably are not going to say the word propitiation much. It's a legal term. And, and simplistically, it gives the idea that Jesus Christ became our substitute and satisfied God's wrath. That is, because we are sinners, because we have offended the law of God, we deserve God's wrath. Now, you see the chandelier right here? All over, we have six of them in this auditorium. And it doesn't matter which link on that chain you break. If I were to break one of those links, what happens to the chandelier? It falls. That's exactly right. And the Bible says in the book of James that if you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of it all. So it doesn't matter if you have lied. It doesn't matter if you've had sex outside of marriage. It doesn't matter if you have stolen something. It doesn't matter if you have uh, committed adultery or practiced homosexuality. It, it doesn't matter what you've broken in God's law. As soon as you sin, you're instantly a sinner. And separated from God. And the only way to become a believer and to no longer be an offender is for your sins to be propitiated. And it means that the wrath that God was going to throw upon us, God put that wrath upon his son Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so now in God's courtroom, we can be propitiated. It also gives the idea here of um, expiation. And it's not a word that we use a lot, but not only is God able to take his wrath and put it on his son, but God is able to remove our sin and our guiltiness of sin. And that gives the idea here in this verse. It says he is the propitiation for our sins. So the times that we didn't measure up to the standard of God, the times that we missed the mark, God intervened. Praise God. And it says, and not for ours only, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let's pause right here, because within theology, maybe, maybe you've been involved in all the heated discussions and debates about this verse, but, but let me remind you, whenever we come to one verse in particular in the Bible, we need to interpret that verse in light of the entirety of God's word. And here the Bible says the whole world. The world gives three meanings in your Bible there. It gives the idea of the world that is the earth, gives the idea that the people that are living in the world, and then it gives the idea of the system of this world. And it's obvious you can rule out two of them, and this one is a reference to the people in this world. And it says the whole world. That means the entirety of the world. In other words, all humanity. But does the Bible say anything else about this? Well, it says, for God so loved the world, the same word that's used here by John, here in 1 John 2, back in John chapter 3, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy and said that God who would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Peter, Peter writes and he says that God is not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. The writer of Hebrews says that Christ tasted death for all men. So what does this mean? The extent of the atonement has been debated ever since Jesus ascended up to glory. Is it limited? Is it unlimited? Is it partial? Is it definite? Is it impartial? Today, I've just come to believe this, that the atonement is total. That when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for sins. And he paid for the penalty of guilty sinners. So that guilty sinners could come to faith in Jesus Christ. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The atonement of Christ is sufficient for all. But only efficient for those who believe. That is, when Jesus paid the penalty for sins once and for all, he made it possible for all of humanity to come to faith in Christ, but only those who come to faith in Christ will the atonement be applied to their account. And so my question for you is simply this. Will your sins be propitiated in God's courtroom? Are you justified in God's sight? Or will you be condemned? Jesus Christ is my advocate in God's courtroom because he is my propitiation. Is he your propitiation? The only hope in God's courtroom is to have Jesus Christ as your advocate. Is he your advocate today? Would you look at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6? The next section here in our passage reveals to us his second thought. Jesus Christ is my advocate because he is my affirmation. Not only is he my propitiation, but he is my affirmation. Jesus Christ is my advocate in God's courtroom because he is my affirmation. Here we see that in the first two verses, John is writing to his beloved believers. That is, maybe these are ones that he has discipled and mentored and even led to Christ. And he's writing to them and explaining them uh, these legal terms, how it relates to the Christian life. But then he transitions here. And he writes in a way that we can know that we know that we're believers. That is, that we can have affirming evidence in our lives of saving faith. But my question in God's courtroom, is there enough evidence that Jesus will be able to use 
to declare to God the judge that you are part of his family? Look at verse 3. How can we have this evidence? Or how do we know that our faith is affirmed? Well, verse 3, I believe, reveals it. Here's a thought I want to share with you. Affirming evidence of saving faith is a lifestyle of obedience. Affirming evidence of saving faith is a lifestyle of obedience. Look at verse 3. It says, and hereby we do know that we know him. I love the phrase of the King James right here. It's so easy to commit to memory right here. Hereby we do know that we know. Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you're a Christian? Well, that's the point of the book of 1 John. Do you believe that Christ is the Son of God? Do you obey the word of God? Are you displaying the love of God? That's the whole point here. And John is going to use these different arguments. And now he's transitioning from the concept of Jesus as God's son to believers obeying his word in their daily life. Remember, John is combating the the beginnings of this thought or this theological heresy called Gnosticism where they they said that, that, hey, matter is evil, but the spirit is good, and it doesn't matter how you live in your life. As long as you have the right knowledge, you can attain enlightenment. In other words, he says you can do whatever you want to in your lifestyle. You can live in completely uh, habitual practices no matter what God's word says as long as you know the right things. But John says that is totally foreign to the life of the believer. And he says, hereby we do know that we know him. Check it out now. If we keep his commandments. Would you say keep with me? Keep. Say it again. Keep. This gives the idea of safeguarding his commandments. But what does that mean? Safeguard. Does that mean I got to take his law and I got to go to the big store? I got to get the big old safe. I got to develop a little code and I got to put all his, 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 his word in, in the safe? Is that what this means? No, that's not what it means. Although the word keep could mean that, just not in this context. It, it means to safeguard God's word internally in your mind. In such a way that it is externally manifested in the way that you live. Does that make sense? That you're going to take God's word, you're going to safeguard it into your mind, and then you're going to live it out in your life. A lifestyle of obedience. This doesn't mean that you're not going to stumble and fall, but it means that, that, that your life is going to be totally transformed once you come to faith in Christ before you were, and then after you came to faith in Christ. That is the testimony that we have, that Jesus steps in and changes us. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be strung out on drugs, that everybody has to be a homeless drunkard living at the mission and God gloriously saves them. And that would be an awesome testimony because it shows the grace of God. But here, the idea is simply that some people might have is that hey, God is gracious, so sin all you want to because the more you sin, God gets to display his grace each and every day even more. No. No, Paul said, God forbid that we should stay in sin, that grace may abound. Yes, we, we know that God is gracious, but we should never uh, put God's grace on trial. And then it says commandments. What does this mean? Does this mean the Ten Commandments? Does this mean Paul's commandments? Does this mean John's commandments? Does this mean Peter's commandments? Does this mean Moses' commandments in the law? What does this mean? Well, I think it's pretty obvious 
that it, first and foremost, it's referring to the commandments that Jesus declared in his life. And then if there are any Old Testament commandments that are transitioned into the New Testament, those are the ones that we clearly have got to keep. And so he says, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. What did Jesus say? He said in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, I believe, my memory serves me correct, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So do you love God? If you claim that you know God, you will obey God's word as a lifestyle. And now check out verse 4. Here we go. Affirming evidence of saving faith is a lifestyle of obedience, but check this out. In verse 4, affirming evidence of denying faith is a lifestyle of disobedience. Verse 4, it says, he that saith, he that makes a profession, he that makes a claim. That is, this person professes Christ, but they do not possess Christ. There is a major difference. It says, he that says, I know him, same word as verse number 3, and keepeth same word as in verse number three, that is safeguarding it in your mind that it will be lived out in your life. It says he keeps not his commandments. The Bible says he is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's a phrase that John has already kind of already said. For those who claim that they do not sin, they are a liar and the truth does not abide in them. As I was reading here in this passage, I was reminded of one of the greatest deceptive stories in the word of God. You had Jacob who left his hometown, finds Laban, and he works seven years to marry the love of his life, Rachel. And finally the day came, I guess they didn't have lights in their house, of course they didn't have electricity, but, but the next morning he woke up and it, Rachel was not there. <laughs> it was Leah. Would you be mad that the next morning after your wedding ceremony that you realize that you are married to somebody that you did not agree to be married to? <laughs> and so there he goes back to Laban and he is infuriated. He is angry. And I guess he loved Rachel so much he worked another seven years for her. <laughs> what love? <laughs> I don't know if I have that level of love. And I don't know if any of you do either. This word liar, it, it, it gives this idea of somebody putting a veil on and then that veil is removed to reveal the absolute truth. And when Jacob unveiled the veil that was on his wife, he realized that she was not the one he agreed to marry. And so here the Bible says that, that, that if we claim to have this veil of of knowing God over us in our spiritual life, but the actions in our life do not measure up to the profession, then it is a great indication that the truth of God is not in us, and we have falsified evidence in our life. And so affirming evidence of denying faith is a lifestyle of disobedience. Now, this does not mean um, like, like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm a Christian now, and I, I've, man, I, I stumbled here, and I messed up. No, it gives the idea that, that you're living in such a way that you no longer agree what God says about sin and that you no longer are willing to confess it, no longer willing to repent of it, and so you're living in open rebellion against God. 
And remember, John was combating these false believers who were claiming that they knew God, but their lifestyle was, was totally foreign to what Jesus declared. Today, I'm reminded of the modern church. We have a whole group of, of people who claim faith in Christ, but they live as if they don't know Christ. I'm telling you, if the gospel has truly transformed you, there should be a transformation in the way that you live. But now look at the last two verses. John is kind of giving evidence of saving faith and denying faith here, and he comes back to saving faith in verses 5 and 6. Affirming evidence of saving faith is a lifestyle of holiness. Not just saving faith is a lifestyle of obedience, but here he says that there's going to be a lifestyle of holiness. Now, holiness is, is not necessarily about a list of do's and don'ts. This is not legalism John is relaying here. Legalism manifests itself in two ways. You're adding to saving faith. That is, you have to do some level of work to obtain salvation in addition to God's grace. But then the other aspect of legalism is adding a list of rules that you have to keep that are not commanded by Christ. So this is not legalism that John is declaring here. This is the Christian faith. That is, if we claim Christ, we're going to do these things. But check out verse 5. It says, but who so, in other words, whoever keeps his word, same word here, from keep back in verse 4 and verse 3. It says, keeps his word. It says, in him verily. That is, this is of a certain truth. Is the love of God perfected? This word love is the term that is used for God's love. And the word perfect here, it does not give the idea of flawless perfection. It gives the idea of mature perfection. That is, you've reached the mature, completed state, having God's love in your life and knowing that God has saved you and redeemed you and you receive this love from the cross by living out the word of God. The idea of, of this mature love. And it says, hereby know we are in him. But then look at verse 6. It says, he that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. The word ought here, it gives the idea that you owe somebody something. Now imagine I came to your house and I decided I was going to do you a favor. And I was going to mow your grass. And that's a big favor coming from me. <laughs> that's a huge favor. <laughs> but let's say I did that. But the reason I did that is because I wanted you to come and mow my grass. Would you feel obligated if I came and mowed your grass for, me to, for, for you to come and mow my grass? I mean, uh, this uh, a word is an obligation ought. That is that Jesus has done something in such a way that we should willingly lay down our lives of service to him. We ought to walk as he walked. Because of the way that he lived. Now, does that mean walk that he walked? Does it mean that, that we've got to go to the store and buy the exact sandals that he used? Does it mean that we need to go to the store and buy the exact tunic that he used? Does it mean that we need to get rid of our cars? Does it mean that we need to get rid of our house? I mean, he was a kind of a nomad. Didn't really have a home. Didn't really have a car. Does that, is that what this means? No. No. 
Sure, the word walk, if you pull it out of its context, it means that you literally walk like, like I'm walking right here on the stage, like you're walking. But this gives the idea of that, that our lifestyle is going to match the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. And so here today, my, my question is simple, is, is are you living a lifestyle that, that is like Jesus Christ, that is a lifestyle of servitude, a lifestyle of service, a lifestyle of, of, of going around and doing good things and loving your neighbor as yourself and, and loving God supremely. Jesus Christ is my advocate because he is my affirmation. Today, I can affirm my faith in Christ because of the way in which I live. It is the encouragement. John, this is meant to encourage us that, hey, I know that I'm a believer because I am living the way that Christ has called me to live. Now, works do not save us. We work because we are saved. Paul made that clear in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but we are created, we are his workmanship created unto good works, that after Jesus comes and redeems us and saves us and propitiates us, we are to live out his word each and every day. Would you say that you're a sports fan? Do you have a team that you like to follow? Well, the word fan, of course, it has many different meanings, but the word that I'm looking for is this definition. A person who has a strong interest in or admiration for a particular person or a thing. Just the other day, actually, it's been a little, little while back, I was driving down the road and I saw a truck. And it was a truck that was painted burnt orange and Chicago maroon. And if you know anything, that is the Virginia Tech colors. It had a Virginia Tech flag in the window, and it had a Virginia Tech logo on the side of the truck, and it had something about Virginia Tech on the license plate. I guess it is safe for me to conclude that they were a Virginia Tech fan. Now, if I told you I was a Lakers fan, would you maybe expect me to have gone to a Lakers game? Or maybe if I lived in Los Angeles, could I have season tickets? Or even if I didn't live in Los Angeles, would I have some tickets to the games? Would you expect me to, to drive around with a car that was painted purple, gold, black, and white? <laughs> I sure hope not. But would you expect me to at least have time that I blocked off my schedule to turn the television on or to get out the app on my phone, ESPN or whatever the app is, and watch the game? Would you at least expect me to maybe have some apparel like a hat or a jersey or a t-shirt? Sure, you probably would. But if I didn't have any of the apparel, if I never been to a game, much less season tickets, if I didn't even watch their games on TV, and I never even talked about them in conversation, never even mentioned, you know, some of the key players like Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal or Wilt Chamberlain or Jerry West or even these days LeBron James, if I never even mention them, then you might be able to conclude that, that I was not really a Los Angeles Lakers fan. I'm afraid that there are a lot of people just like me. Claim they're a fan and follower of Jesus Christ, but their lifestyle doesn't match the claim. So in God's courtroom, will you be justified or will you be condemned? The only hope in God's courtroom is to have Jesus Christ as your 
advocate. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.